Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it may be difficult in this day of technology to shield kids from the news, and especially when it contains violence. But what's an appropriate age? And just how do you talk to kids about violence? And what should parents and caregivers look for in terms of emotional stress that these images can have on our youngest? Well, Jody Bomstein's a licensed therapist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and she returns to the program to discuss all of this. Now, we've heard from Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens regarding his overall priorities for the city, but now we'll turn to members of the Atlanta City Council. First up, in his first year on council, Jason Dozier. He represents District 4, which includes neighborhoods such as Ashview Heights, West End, and Mechanicsville. He'll join me in studio. And later in the program... Talapusi has possession right now, skips out of one, Martini, Talapusi, raise the glass... That is fantastic rugby from Rugby ATL. That's right. I'm going to get my rugby talk on. Atlanta's professional team, Rugby ATL, is headed to the playoffs. We'll introduce you to Rugby ATL and head coach Steve Brett. Those conversations coming up. But first this, Fulton County Special Grand Jury on whether former President Donald Trump tried to meddle in Georgia's 2020 election is moving forward. The state's top elections official testified yesterday. As we hear from WAB's politics reporter, Raul Bali. Before his appearance, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was asked to provide information about his now infamous phone call with then-President Donald Trump. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Raffensperger refused that request. According to a subpoena obtained by WABE News, other items requested from Raffensperger's office includes data and information on how the 2020 elections were run in Georgia. The secretary's office did not publicly comment on his appearance in front of the grand jury. Current and former staffers of the secretary of state's office have been subpoenaed to appear in front of the grand jury next week. At the Fulton County Courthouse, Raul Bally, WABE News. In other news, the North Georgia Conference of United Methodist Churches has severed ties with 70 of its member congregations over issues related to the LGBTQ community. As we hear from Lily Oppenheimer, the vote was yesterday by church officials. Tensions over LGBTQ inclusion, like officiating same-sex weddings and ordaining LGBTQ clergy, had been threatening to break up the ministries for a while. Conservative church leaders unveiled plans last year to form a new denomination, the Global Methodist Church. It officially launched in May. And on its website, the Global Methodists make it clear the denomination would only adhere to marriage between a man and a woman. Bishop Sue Halpert Johnson led the vote in Athens. And I pray that you will be in prayer 
with your congregation as you contemplate your future. I think the future of the United Methodist Church is bright, but I do understand that there are differences of opinion, and I honor that. More than 90% of delegates voted to drop the churches. A small percentage abstained. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And finally, four Georgia schools are set to compete in the Division I college baseball tournament that begins today as we hear from Emil Moffitt. The Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets play at noon today in the Knoxville, Tennessee Regional against Campbell University. Tonight at 7, the Georgia Bulldogs will play Virginia Commonwealth in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Kennesaw State takes on LSU in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The only Georgia school that earned the chance to be a tournament host this weekend is Georgia Southern. They play UNC Greensboro at 7 tonight in Statesboro. The first round of the tournament is double elimination. The winner of each regional goes on to play in the Super Regionals next weekend. The Men's College World Series starts June 17th in Omaha, Nebraska. Emil Moffat, WABE News. And good luck to you all. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Close Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Processing acts of violence, well, it's hard for us adults, right? But imagine trying to talk with our children, and especially about the recent mass shootings that have been taking place in our nation, which got us to wondering, how do you do? How do you start this conversation with children, if you have to have it? What's an appropriate age? And also, how do we look for signs with our youngest folks in terms of the emotional stress that all this can have on them? Well, Jody Bonstein is a licensed therapist at Children's Health Care of Atlanta at their Strong for Life department. She joins me now to discuss ways we can talk with our children about all that's happening. Jody, welcome back to the program. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, coming into this program, I talked about how challenging it is just for some adults. You know, and as a journalist, and I just had this conversation not too long ago with a fellow journalist, you know, it's hard for us to process all of this. Um, what's an appro- Let's begin here. What is an appropriate age, you think? Um, and it's hard, we know, because how we get news is different from when you and I were little, right? You know, mm-hmm. what's an appropriate age, you think? Well, it's hard to say an exact age. What I think is more important is thinking about their exposure. Mm-hmm. So if, if we're talking about a toddler and they haven't heard anything about this, However, we have to be mindful of what they might be listening to. So our conversations, when we think they're not listening, they might be absorbing. Or if we have something on in the background of the TV, they might be absorbing. But if they truly haven't seen anything, it's really up to you if you want to bring it up. However, if a child has been even remotely exposed, we need to have a conversation. So even if you might not be talking about it, they might be hearing about it from their friends at school. They might have seen something if they have their own device. So we don't want to assume that 
oh, they're too young to think about it. We do want to get ahead of it and start a conversation to see what's on their mind. When parents ask you and you, you give them that assessment as well, I'm just curious, what are some of the other questions they have? Because, you know, with our little ones, little ones too, you never know what question that we're going to get. But what are some of those familiar questions that parents are always seeking from you advice for? I think one of the biggest questions right now is how do we make sense of this all? I think part of it is that it's so layered. There's just so many things that have happened. So yes, we're talking about the school shootings, but what about the shooting in Buffalo, the war in Ukraine, the ongoing pandemic? And I think what adults are saying is that they just feel this unbelievable heaviness with the layers of trauma and stress and grief. So what people are trying to figure out is what is this sweet spot of how do we kind of feel it, but not be consumed by it? How do we contain it, but not avoid it? And I think they're struggling with that themselves. So they don't know how do we do that to protect kids. I want to step away from parents for a moment because I had a listener email me that wanted to know if you ask your guests, if you think that schools should also contact parents before they attempt to have this conversation. Now, in some classrooms, obviously, you talk about the news of the day, and that could be middle school on up. But third grade, you know, if a, if a teacher feels like it's okay, but do you recommend that maybe a, a school district or the principal, that there is some type of policy regarding discussing, you know, news of the day that might be just too much for, for students? Well, to be fair, I, I don't want to at all try to attempt to dictate what schools sure. should be doing. I think what's more important is, are these themes that they can be talking about. Um, for instance, you know, kids need to know how to express themselves. Mm-hmm. These are big, complicated, scary topics. And if we are silent all the time, the message we're giving them is this stuff is too big. We can't talk about it because we can't handle it. Mm-hmm. So I guess the way I think about it is forget the specific event that's in the news. What we need to be equipping kids with and we can do in schools is with the skills of how to recognize and name their feelings, Mm -hmm. how to express them, how to cope with them, how to ask tough questions and have hard hard conversations, how to ask for help. I think that's the undercurrent of all of this, regardless of what's happening today in the news, because we know it'll be something else next week and a month from now it'll be different. Mm -hmm. There is this need for prevention. And what I mean by that is really starting these conversations long before something big and scary has come up in the news. Mm -hmm. And that really helps to normalize it so that kids know I can handle it. Speaking of normalize, I often will hear some folks say, well, you know, there's so much, and it's what folks is violence in the movies and the video games, and it's all out there. But, you know, would you say that for those parents who are trying to desperately shield this this type of news from their kids that that can actually backfire because when they're out and about or even if they're just playing on their phone or whatever and a news alert pops up you know we all have those news alerts that may be playing on their parents phone and then a news alert pops up do you recommend and this, this is through your expertise that if you're trying to shield your kids from all of this that it, it can be it, it can backfire yeah I love that Rose I think it's a it's a good question and it comes up all the time I think there are two parts of that. One, we need to recognize exactly what you just talked about. These constant alerts and notifications are doing more harm than good. Even as adults, I think we can probably admit this. They are keeping us in a state of arousal at all times. And part of it 
which is challenging is that it's changing how our brain is operating. So if we're constantly exposed all the time, we are living in a state of constant fear and thinking that we are constantly threatened, which is not actually the case. So I do think we need to set some limits on the amount of media exposure that we're getting and our kids are getting, number one. Number two, to answer your other question, I think when we are thinking about the long term, we're thinking about how do we build a kid that's resilient and can kind of handle what's going on in their life. We have to start by having conversations and exposing them to things. So if we're constantly trying to shield them, first of all, we're setting ourselves up to fail because there is no possible way mm-hmm. we can protect them from everything that's going to be scary. So instead, we need to accept that stress is an inevitable part of life. Kids are going to experience it even in the day to day. There's a tough quiz and I failed. What is that? How do I navigate it? Um, I have a tough experience with a teacher or peer. We can't protect them from all that. So how instead can we prepare them by giving them the skills that they need to be able to navigate through it, not around it? If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Jody Bonstein. Is it Bombstein or Bombstein? We we Bombstein. you got okay. It. Just you checking because you know I don't want to get an email. That's not how you pronounce my cousin's name. Um, a licensed therapist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Strong for Life, and we're talking about how to talk with your kids about violence and, of course, the recent mass shootings across the nation. Often we may not think something like this is affecting our kids, but it is. So now we want to talk about what are the signs that perhaps parents and caregivers should look for, but at the same time, don't overreact and then start calling you and say, hey, I need to put my child in therapy. But what should folks look for, if, you know, just in case? Right. Great question. I think here it's also important to recognize that we can experience a response to something traumatic, even if we didn't directly experience it. Mm-hmm. So let me just say that there are so many things that have gone on in the last few weeks and will continue to go on that are really traumatic. And even if we weren't there, for instance, in the building last week of that school, just seeing it, just hearing about it can trigger a trauma response. So some things that parents wanna look out for, number one is that kids are not always gonna have the words to tell us how they feel. So how do they do this? Through their behavior. Mm -hmm. So we need to get very, very curious about what their behavior is telling us Because on the surface, we might see something like a child who is not following our directions at school or at home. Our instinct is to immediately get frustrated and say, well, they're just being defiant. They're disobeying me. What we need to do is really have patience and curiosity in these moments to figure out what might that be? Because what that can be after trauma is a child who is so overwhelmed and consumed by their anxious thoughts, they can't think straight. They might not even be hearing you or what you're saying is so low on the priority of Mm -hmm. safety that it's not going to register. So big things here, again, that distractibility, because they might be consumed with anxiety. Um, They might also start to suddenly have regressions. Mm -hmm. So this can happen a lot with younger kids where maybe they were potty trained and all of a sudden they start having accidents again. It's a really normal sign of stress. Other big things you might notice are somatic complaints. So the headaches, the tummy aches, Mm -hmm. there might be a pattern to them. There might not be. Um, But also some kids go in another direction. They might be really irritable and lashing out because they're angry and they're frustrated. They feel out of control and unsafe. And others are going to completely shut down and withdraw. Mm -hmm. And that is 
also a normal thing after trauma. Sometimes we really want to avoid because we might be experiencing really intrusive thoughts and images and it's very tempting to avoid it. So we stop wanting to talk about it, think about it or do things that remind us. The tricky part here though, is that avoidance really fuels anxiety. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it's really the opposite of what we wanna do. Well, that was my next question because you're an expert here what do you hope parents or you want parents and caregivers and even even educators and summer camp counselors and everybody that what do you want them to at least consider what not to do and what Mm -hmm. and how not to react definitely so one don't avoid the conversation because you are scared that or that you're worried it has to be perfect i think we need to give all of the adults interacting with kids permission to not be perfect because it's not possible. Mm -hmm. So letting go of this idea that you have to have magic words, there's there's no magic fix here. What we need to do is actually have a conversation. And that means just starting and finding out what's on their mind. We're so scared that we have to have all the answers, but it's just not possible. So by opening up a dialogue and asking, hey, what are you thinking? What's on your mind? That will let them guide the conversation so you don't have to. And then another big thing, too, that when you ask what not to do is Mm -hmm. when they share, we have to really show a lot of restraint and not immediately go into fix it mode and say, hey, Rose, don't worry about that. You're fine. Mm -hmm. You're safe, because that is incredibly dismissive and minimizing and it doesn't make them feel better. It just shuts the conversation down. And what it also does is create a sense of shame. And this is already hard enough, these difficult feelings. But when we add this layer of shame to it, what happens is the child starts to think, I am not good at this. I'm mm-hmm. I'm broken. I'm flawed. I'm weak. Other people are doing this better. Maybe they're not experiencing this. We need to do the opposite and let them know these are normal responses to something that's really abnormal. It is normal to feel fear when there are dangers and uncertainties in the world. That's normal. I have a parent who sends an email and says, is it okay to tell your, your, your kid that I too am scared and I too struggle with this? That's beautiful. Yes, and, and of course, with everything, there's a sweet spot. Yes, we want a role model for kids and show them that we have feelings too because what we're doing in those moments is really normalizing for them that having feelings isn't weakness. It's just a part of being a human. So if their parents are saying it, it's creating a safe space for them to do the same. The sweet spot, of course, is that we don't want to put so much on kids that they now become worried that they're making us more anxious. Mm -hmm. So some kids will even say, well, I don't really want to tell my parents how I feel because they've already got a lot going on and I don't want to stress them out. So the, the the balance in that is we want to let them know, hey, I'm worried about this too. It's normal to feel that way. And then show them how we cope. So show them what we do to actually work through it, not stay stuck in it. I think the, when we spoke last time, we were talking about the amount of time kids are spending on tablets and video games yeah. and, and all of that. Is this a situation where if they can escape I don't forgive me if I'm using the wrong word here, if they can escape or find something to take their mind off everything that's out there, you know, and, and place some, this is, now this is Auntie Rose talking, some healthy video games, <laughs> you know, or, or something like that. You, do you encourage that or what's, what's, is it, is it, I think I know what you're going to say. It depends on the child, right? 
well, you'll probably see a theme in what I'm saying here, which is that with everything, there's there's balance. Right. We love as humans to think of everything as really all or nothing. And it's just not the case. It's always that things mostly live in the gray. So when we're thinking about healthy coping, we don't want to go to one extreme or another. Mm -hmm. If we're distracting all the time, we're never going to get through it. We're just going to kind of stay stuck. And also, if we're constantly just stuck in our emotions, we're not going to get through it. So what I would say to that is what's really important is finding the balance. So yes, sometimes kids are going to need a break from it, just like adults. We want to do something that's distracting. And other times we're going to need to really sink into it and help them name it because it's really hard to heal something that we can't even name. So really helping them have a broad range of coping skills is going to be important. I think everybody should go camping, get out in the woods and enjoy it. That's but that's just my opinion. I don't know. <laughs> Jody Bomstein, a licensed therapist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Strong for Life. We've been talking about how to talk with kids about violence. And, of course, this recent mass shootings throughout the nation. Jody, as always, thank you so much for taking time. And a note of disclosure, as always, we encourage folks to consult with their own primary care, mental health uh, practitioners. But, Jody, we appreciate you taking the time. Definitely, Rose. And I would just say, too, this is really complicated, and we obviously just have a few minutes. But I would encourage people, check out our website, strongforlife.com. We have developed a lot of articles, videos, tip sheets, Things you can print and show your kid what feelings looks like and get them pointing to it. We are not on your own here. This is incredibly complicated. So please check it out. And like Rose said, consult with a mental health professional. This is incredibly complicated. And there's a fine line between normal responses and something we want to be concerned about. Don't wait until there's a crisis. Take it seriously. Good way to end this conversation. Jody, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Our listeners appreciate it. You see the emails. Thank you, Rose. Good to see you. Bye-bye. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Okay, here's the question. Just how many neighborhoods are there in the city of Atlanta? Now, I don't mean the ones y'all make up, like Sono and South Buckhead and West Midtown and the ridiculous Lindbergh area being rebranded as Uptown. That's just my opinion. The city of Atlanta is allegedly comprised of 242 neighborhoods officially defined by the city. Now, these neighborhoods are represented on city council via 12 districts and three citywide posts. We're going to find out the top priorities of each district. We're going to begin with Jason Dozier, who is brave enough to be the first one. He represents District 4. Councilman, welcome. Thank you so much, Rose. Thanks for having me. Did you know there were 242 neighborhoods in Atlanta? I did, and I think I'm one of the very few people that actually know that. <laughs> for our listeners who may not know, District 4, I, I mentioned some earlier in the program, like Mechanicsville and Ashview. Ashview Heights. I, I like to describe Mechanicsville as central southwest Atlanta, so everything from Five Points to Port McPherson, with some caveats. So uh, the Coca-Cola Bill is in District 4, okay. as is Venetian Hills and West End and Atlanta University Center. And I, just, I tell people some of Atlanta's most historic communities, but mm-hmm. also uh, some of Atlanta's most vulnerable communities, as we see all the transition that's been happening. Mm-hmm. I know with the conversation with the mayor a couple of days ago, y'all talked about Westview and mm-hmm. West End and some of the property values have been being experienced there, a lot of transition. The, the, overall, the map, it's a little weird in terms of how the districts are trying. They're going to be redrawn here, yep. not too yep. far in the future. Do you like that that whole idea of it being redrawn, or would you like for it to 
I mean, I, I get the well. Firstly, I will say, I mean, it's something we do every 10 years yeah. is, is driven by the census and Atlanta's population has changed a lot in the last 10 years. Some of our city council districts are going to get a lot smaller. I know District 2, I think, has to lose about 11,000 people. That's a lot. That's a lot. And, and District 5, I'm sorry, my district is District 4, but District 12 and 11 and 10 have to gain people. So you're going to see a lot of shifts northward from a lot of these southwest Atlanta districts that have to gain population so that we're all balanced out and equal. As of right now, your District 4 has about 38,000 maybe? About, yeah. Uh, closer to 42. But 42? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of communities that um, I think, in my opinion, have defined Atlanta and what it is and what it is today. When you think about where the history of Atlanta began with the Gulch in that location, that's mm-hmm. in District 4. But you also have our educational institutions and just so many parts of our city are defined by, that district, by our district. And I'm really proud to represent it. When you look at the 2020 census and the demographics there, I mean, Councilman, you look, 68% of homes are renter-occupied. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. 32% are owner-occupied. Medium household income, 35000 Medium home value, 226000 As you look at this, and you mentioned the changing demographics and all those tentacles tied to that, we know why you ran, because I, full disclosure, I, I moderated a debate, but what concerns do you have for your district that you hope the time, and it could be a long time, it could be yeah. a short time, that you really want to address. Yeah, and I really appreciate you framing that, just that demographic, uh, just breakdown of, of our communities. We have a lot of people who rent. I know 68% across the city, but in District 4, you have some neighborhoods. My neighborhood, Mechanical, is 80% renter. You have some neighborhoods that are surrounding, not necessarily in our district, but I know in Eagles Avenue and Vine City, 90% renter. A lot of folks are in apartments. Some folks are in old housing projects that have been converted to multi or mixed use or mm-hmm. mixed income projects. Uh, you have folks renting single family homes. And unfortunately, a lot of our protections for legacy residents in this city are centered around homeowners. And how do we we think about the grandma or the great grandma who has raised her kids and grandkids and how do they stay in their home and protect that wealth? That's a very big and important part of who we are as a city. And we need to protect that. But we also need to protect our renters as well. And that's where I'm looking to find some additional opportunities. You support. heard the interview we did with the mayor um, and even in. The previous administration, that previous administration, that previous administration, everyone has talked about affordable housing being one, obviously one of the top priorities. Based on now with Mayor Dickens' administration, are you a little bit op- more optimistic in terms of all these units that are going to come online? Everyone a- agrees, Councilman, that it's probably not enough mm-hmm. in terms of affordable housing. You you feel like y'all, it's not too late? I, you know, I'm an optimist. Otherwise, I wouldn't have run for office. And, and I think that uh, there are opportunities. I know what the mayor's goal is, and I think that we can do a lot more. But I think that we need to uh, work with our private market to, to get us to that goal. I know we had some conversations last year around density and how can we have density that makes sense in communities that, uh, you know, are historically single family communities. But uh, I always push back with folks and remind them, you know, in West End, uh, you know, when you look at the 1970 census, 20,000 residents in West End. Today's only 5,000. So some of that naturally occurring density that we had, we bulldozed it for highways. We bulldozed it for shopping plazas. But also, you know, we've converted duplexes into single-family homes. We've converted four-unit apartment buildings into single-family homes. And we don't have a legal mechanism in place today to convert that back to allow for that greater density. And that's some of the policies I think can help and include or help support these subsidized housing policies that the mayor is pushing. What are those... I guess, staples in your district that you, I mean, I know parts of the AUC, if not all, are in your district, correct? Mm-hmm. And at the, and Mall West End, yours? Or yes, not? yes. So two iconic areas in a sense. 
Uh, and the strength, obviously, of the AUC. Absolutely. I mean, to have those HBCUs there and the work they do in the community. But then when we talk about economic development and the jobs and jobs for people who work and live in the community, how do you see that? I mean, and, and the Mall West is a big part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is where I've had a lot of phenomenal conversations with Invest Atlanta and WorkSource Atlanta specifically in trying to figure out ways in which this, the city can support their efforts to train Atlantans, to get Atlantans hired into companies that are coming to Atlanta. Microsoft's coming, and we want to make sure that we can get Atlantans hired into those good-paying jobs. We know that other companies are looking to expand here, uh, or even with the city of Atlanta. We, we should be a leader on that front and hire from within and have a, a a pipeline and a partnership with our schools so that young kids who are graduating can go work for the city. And so I think there's a lot of there's ways that which we can partner with corporations and with the public sector that we haven't fully uh, figured out quite yet. But those are some of the conversations we're having and the partnerships we're trying to build out right now. Workforce development. Is that a lot? And I imagine maybe public safety or those to and, and affordable housing at the top three you hear from your constituents that and transportation how do we, how do people get around safely and i remind people a lot of times that you know even though uh, a lot of our residents in south even though you don't see a ton of bus stops and see a ton of uh, bus shelters in some of our communities in southwest Atlanta, we have the highest percentage of residents who don't own a car who don't have access to a car and, and and have the greatest need to get around safely but the infrastructure isn't there and so trying to make sure that we get better bus stops safer bus stops so it's not just a pole in the dirt and someone can ride the bus with dignity so that we can repave our streets so uh, I, as a pedestrian taking my kid over to Tuskegee Airman Global Academy I don't have to worry about cars trying to dodge potholes let alone not paying attention to pedestrians so it's, it's all related and we got to make sure that we're investing in that as well. Well, uh, voters just approved $750 million, so how much is your cut <laughs> for your district? Well, every district got uh, what they call horizontal funding, so to support recreation centers and things like that, $1.5 million. Another, I'm sorry, that's vertical funding. Another $1.5 million for horizontal funding, so sidewalks and street repair. But one of the things that, and I campaigned on this, uh, District 4 still has renew funds. If you remember, we voted for the Renew Atlanta bond back in, uh, or T-SPOS 1.0, maybe seven, eight years ago, mm -hmm. and we still have funding available for that, and we're using that. To, I mean, I'm, I've been an inflation hog in every me committee meeting that I've had and concerned about the value of these projects going forward, and so I'm trying to spend that fund down so we can focus on these new tranche of monies that we have. So speed tables and flashing beacons and sidewalk repairs, I'm trying to get that done so that we can focus on the future. You recently sponsored a resolution calling on Amtrak to restore passenger service to a more essential part of the city in your district too. Why was this so important? So I think just with the timing, it, it was important to say and, and be full-throated as a city to say we want Amtrak expansion in the city of Atlanta. We want passenger rail expansion. Uh, last year, Amtrak announced this Connect Us plan that uh, envisioned potential connection to Macon and Savannah and Nashville and, and Charlotte from the city of Atlanta. What we haven't heard is a, a, a continued commitment and continued focus, at least in the public forum. And we're trying to make sure that that happens. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of different stakeholders, folks who are, are involved with the Department of Transportation, folks who are involved with CIM. And I think at the end of the day, uh, folks are wanting to see an expansion, but we need Amtrak at the table to have a conversation on what that could potentially look like. You've got some, as we call you, you're getting some love via email. Yeah, he ain't been there a whole year. <laughs> but someone says, let's applaud Councilmember Dozier's <laughs> foresight. Uh, but this person says rail is key to sustainable growth and progress in Atlanta and the whole of the Southeast. Is this what you're talking about? That exactly what I'm talking about, and especially as we have uh, goals. Climate change is real, y'all. And, you know, while I love being able to visit 
uh, family in Oregon and, and going across country, we need ways to get around that is more climate friendly, it's more cost effective for families. So if I'm visiting other family in Savannah or Na Nashville, I shouldn't have to get on the plane to do that. And, you know, I, I, I have a car today, but I've gone without a car for five years in this city. And I imagine other families who are trying to make that calculation, gas is expensive. So finding additional opportunities to get people around not only efficiently and effectively, but safely and cost effectively, I think is the way of the future. And I, I want to see the city of Atlanta support that vision so that we can all work together to get to that point. Well, and the other issue, of course, for any neighborhood is public safety. Uh, what are you wanting in the next chief for Atlanta? I want a chief that is is focused on, uh, you know, changing the the culture of policing in this city. One that is focused on getting officers out of their cars and and walking in neighborhoods and talking to residents and building relationships. And you know, my, I served as a platoon leader in, in Iraq, and I know how different that experience is when you're out of your truck and you you take off your helmet and you talk. To, I talked to myself to read and write Arabic because I thought it would help me build rapport with the people I was trying to protect. And mm. I think getting officers out of their cars and and walking these communities in ways like we used to, I think, will go so far. You you miss so much when you're driving. When you're walking, when you're on a bicycle, you understand the community in, in a much more intimate way than you might when you're behind a steering wheel. How would you describe the the citizens in District 4? Are you looking more, to, are we seeing more of progressives, uh, young adults, millennials, Generation Z? Don't get me started on Generation <laughs> Z because I just do not understand them. I love them dearly, but every day I do something wrong, so hey. But no, that's what you want, though. But are you seeing some shift in terms of, you know, who's moving into District 4? And, and, and does, does that also lend itself to that it'll be helpful for the city to recognize the changing demographics of these neighborhoods? And that helps in policy that yeah. they come up with. And I'll say, too, just this all of the above is a quick answer to that. Uh, just the longer answer is District 4 is a diverse district, not only in terms of the, the racial and gender demographics, but age, uh, the types of housing. Like I said, we have the plurality of downtown Atlanta. That's why I serve on the Atlanta Downtown Improvement District Board. We have a, a good part of downtown Atlanta, but we also have suburban type communities like in Venetian Hills and West mm -hmm. End uh, in Oakland City. And those priorities are very different. And they're very different now within communities between renters and homeowners, between folks who are legacy and been there for 20, 30, 40 years and folks who are new. Even if there's commonality with race and gender, those other demographic profiles can create some different needs or different interests. Is it time to really look at single-family zoning in terms of the good, the bad, the ugly? I mean, depending on whom you ask, you get a different answer as mm -hmm. to the effectiveness of it. What do you think? I think it's time to, to look at our zoning in, in, in aggregate. Uh, Single-family zoning is part of that, and I think that um, you know we have a housing shortage in this city. I think there's ways to get density in our communities that doesn't disrupt neighborhood character, which is where people get the most concern. Mm -hmm. A duplex isn't going to disrupt neighborhood character. A triplex isn't going to disrupt neighborhood character. And there are examples of density being built out in single-family communities that had the support of neighbors and MPUs, and that density fits right in. A new project was approved by West End just last year uh, that is going to add eight eight-unit apartment building that fits and conforms with the, the, the zoning requirements there. There's other great examples of that happening across the city, and I think that as a city, we should support those and highlight how important it is to to continue to have those conversations, because mm -hmm. I think the lack of conversations and the communication gap really is what pushed back on the legislation that was debated last year. But there's just other ways to get to that point that I think that we maybe have missed the mark on, but I want to continue to move us in that direction. 
And finally, it's only been, what, five, six months, something like that. But um, what's been your biggest takeaway for you or something unexpected that you learn or you're learning? Yeah. Um, well, I think that, um, well, I think, I, I joke that um, I, I'm the city council member that got all the homework, all the extra assignments. Um, so by virtue of being a District 4 uh, representative, I serve on the West End Community Improvement District Board. I serve on the Atlanta Downtown Improvement District Board. And I serve on the National Center for Civil and Human Rights Board. But also because I'm the, the Community Development Human Services Committee Chair, I serve on the Invest Atlanta Board and the Atlanta Beltline Board. So that's, and then of course all those boards have their subcommittees. So there's a lot of board work that I'm working on, but what's been awesome is being able to be a voice in those spaces where even though I campaign about certain issues focused specifically on District 4, I'm able to have conversations and, and, and help shape policy that impacts the whole city. And so I'm really thankful for that opportunity to be able to do that. I will say too, um, you know, with the relationships that I've built, uh, being able to leverage those relationships to, to get even better, bigger and better things for the district, I think has been just so remarkable. Just going back to the West End example, mm -hmm. you know, West End Mall is actively being redeveloped yeah. and just the relationship. Well, well it, 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 <laughs> it's, it's under contract. I, I can tell you that. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but it's been on the contract before. Under, understood. understood. <laughs> and then given what just happened with the Civic Center. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it's a process. It, we are somewhere in that process. I'll put okay. it that way. But as we are trying to make sure that developer is, is, is at the table, the relationships I was able to build with Western Merchant Coalition, Western Community Improvement District, who were so instrumental in getting all the community stakeholders together with the, the potential prospective developer, uh, those sorts of things, being on those spaces, I think has helped remarkably in supporting my constituents. I want to continue to build on those relationships to do that. I think one of the first times when we spoke, you you and your wife had just welcomed a little one. How are you balancing doing all that? And just being a dad, Jason, because yeah. you got to be a dad. Well, I joke and say my daughter is the most civically engaged toddler in the city of Atlanta. She goes to MPU meetings. She goes to committee meetings. Well, not committee meetings yet, but she's gone to town halls. She's been at city halls several times, and she'll continue to be in that world as she gets older. So I'm just thankful that she's in our life, and I hope that uh, maybe she'll one day want to serve the city in the same way that I am one day. All right, Jason Dozier representing District 4. Thank you so much for being the first person. You answered. Now, see, tell your fellow council, they don't have to be scared. It was painless. Well, now, that's just Jason's experience. Thank you so much for taking time. We'll Thank check back so in with you. Absolutely. All right. From WAB in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Atlanta's professional rugby team is looking very solid heading into the playoffs. Now there's one more regular season game tonight as the team is still fighting for some top seeding in Major League Rugby's Eastern Conference. And now Rugby ATL will take on Nola Gold at Silverbacks Park in DeKalb County. So let's talk all about it. Joining me now is Rugby ATL head coach Steve Brett. Coach, welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. Nice to meet you. Same here. Listen, you you took over head coaching duties earlier this year. You're, you now you're all sitting at ten and five. Let me ask you this: What is this? What's the thread? I love asking coaches this to talk about their identity and the thread of, of their team. How would you describe this for rugby ATL? What would you say? Uh, so we live off one uh, one value, and it's called pace. Mm -hmm. So the the word the, the word pace stands for people. Um, accountability community and execution so that's that's a, that's a value that we that we pride ourselves in and that we we try to make better people out of the players uh, we try to make our players accountable for everything they do 
we try to reach out to our community and do everything with the community. And then obviously to, to finish off the value, you've got to execute everything. So You have so much experience, coach, in, in rugby. And listen, full, full disclosure, I don't know everything about rugby, but I know when someone is good. How, what would you say you're bringing to the team because of your experience? I mean, you played professionally for what, 14, 15 years? Yeah, 15, 14 years I played professional. Yeah. So I guess like the, what I'm bringing to the team is my experience in, in, in the game of rugby. And obviously, America is still, it's still a, young, a young sport in America. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just here just to give my experience and try to make these players better rugby boys. I'm glad you brought that up in terms of, you know, a, the popularity here because I think we tend to watch it during the Olympics, but this is a huge sport internationally. Is this a situation where much like with soccer, we need to get our youth involved early and interested possibly in rugby? And I know there's some folks out there saying, Rose, rugby looks very dangerous, but hey, look, so is other sports. But is this something that we got to get our youth, you know, at least in front of to at least expose them to it? Definitely. Obviously, with America getting the World Cup in 2031, uh, I think USA Rugby from the top down are trying to trying to get all the rugby all the rugby through all the high schools and all through the youth. Uh, there's a really good program here called the Atlanta Youth Rugby. Uh, they bring in a lot of youth youth players through their through their uh, communications. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a big thing that we need to do is is to get a bigger player pool for to have a better side come World Cup 2031, then mm-hmm. yes, you definitely have to start from the bottom. When you think about that, the league, I mean, you all were founded in 2020. It's obviously the pandemic. How has it been these last two years in terms of letting folks know? And some folks emailed me, said, Rose, I didn't even know we had a professional rugby team these last two years. Has it been a challenge for the league in terms of, because they launched, I think, in April 2018, just, getting the word out and marketing and promoting and letting folks know that yes, Atlanta, you have a rugby, a professional rugby team. Yeah. So, and obviously uh, last year with all the COVID rules, like getting crowds into the stadium was, was really hard for us because we were at life university. We could only have 25% capacity at the start of the year. Then it moved on to 50% and it just stayed at 50%. So we couldn't get the crowds that we wanted to, to get involved within the rugby community. Um, but now this year we're, we're at 100% capacity, so we're, we're trying to get as many people along to Silverbacks Park uh, to watch us play. Because it's it's when when people go to the ground, it's they they obviously don't know the sport, but as soon as they start watching mm-hmm. the sport, they're like, "Cool, this this sport's awesome. We we, we need to watch it all the time now." It is awesome, and what's what I love about it is it's the definition. Rugby is a game in which the object is to carry the ball over the opponent's goal line and force it to the ground to score. That sounds very easy to do, but is is not. And as a friend of mine said. This is constant. Do y'all ever get a timeout? Because it looks like once you start, it is full on. It's 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 not like you get you have a whistle that's going to blow every two to three minutes here. It, it just seems so constant. Yeah, that, that's the good thing about the sport, Rose. It's it's just it's just full on. It's fast, high action. Um, obviously, there's there's times in the game where people might get injured, so they'll get a break then. But then we've got scheduled. Uh, scheduled breaks at the 20 minute mark at halftime and then at the 60 minute mark so the boys do get a bit of a break but it's that's that's what's so good about watching rugby it's just it's just full full time action it's awesome let me ask you this coach what do you think folks get wrong about 
the sport of rugby and when they try to compare it to our American football? You can't throw the ball forward. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so how do you um, advance it? So you can't, so it has, does it have to go to the ground and then that's the only way you can advance it to pick it up? Yeah, so you obviously what you're trying to do is you're trying to manip manipulate the defense by getting a one-on-one -on -one and trying to break the defensive line, exactly like exactly like uh, football. Uh, but obviously we've got to try to run into the space instead of throwing the ball into the space. Um, another way you can advance forward is by kicking the ball into corners or into space that we that we see. Um, so that's 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 it's similar, but it's not very similar. Obviously, NFL you got. You got you got to stop a every thirty seconds or whatever it is, and it goes for long periods of time. But with rugby, it's just all go. Now, what kind of coach are you on the sidelines? Are you a yeller, screamer? Do you go after, do you go after the officials, or are you more laid back and kind of cool? You just have like this, like a Bill Belichick, where you just kind of stoic. I'm a I'm a bit of a mixture, to be honest, Rose. <laughs> like I can I'm up in a box, so I'm not on ground like Bill. Um, so when I don't see things going the way that I want them to go, I'll, I'll yell out. Obviously, I've got a radio with me, so I, I yell out messages on through through our radios to to the guys that hand the messages on to the players. Now, let me ask you this, because often, and I talk to coaches, and they'll say when it comes to the playoffs, you don't want to overthink it. You don't maybe change what got you to the playoffs. You work at what got you there. But obviously, you're, you know you, you know these teams. Teams know each other. What is the strategy going into the playoffs? Are you going to? change up some things or you stick with the plan um we'll stick with our uh, general policies around how we play in each zone of the field um but then we'll have we'll have a couple of special plays that we'll we'll use against uh i think it's going to be new york who we're going to be playing um so it's it's for us it's like we keep the same routine we keep our same habits and and hopefully we do all the preparation during the week for us to execute the game plan in the, in the weekend. And for folks who have never seen a, a rugby match, you want them to come out, you all play at Silverbacks Park. What yes. do you want to promise and pledge them, Coach, that they will see on the field? And, and the field that you all play on, how big is it? It doesn't seem to be uh, that big. The, the Silverbacks Park is 98, yard, oh, 98 yards by 65 yards. Um, so it's, it's a little bit bigger than a uh, football field. Um, but like, like we've been talking about, Rose, it's like it's fuller action. There's a lot of contact. There's no shoulder pads. It's bone on bone, um, and it's 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 a bruising game. But it's it's really fun to watch. See, coach, you were doing so well till you said bone on bone. It's bruising. And some <laughs> folks, said, my child is not playing rugby. Let me ask you this: How much fun are you having as a head coach of this team? I'm having heaps of fun, like just to see, obviously this is my first year as a head coach in, in a professional league and I'm learning as a, as a coach as I, as I go along week in and week out. Um, and, but just just to see the, the growth that these players have had over the year, you know, we've had a lot of adversity at the start of the year, obviously losing our head coach. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a couple of players uh, drop out because of injury. Mm -hmm. um, so like for me, it's like, I give them a, I give them a plan, but they go and execute. And if they go and execute, I'm happy. I have a listener who just sent a, sent an email and said, you know, what do you think is a good age for some a kid to take up rugby? Because it does look a little, you know, a little rough. Uh, so I started I started rugby when I was four years old. Uh, four. 
Yeah, four years old. Uh, but in back in, in, in New Zealand, where I'm you're, from... You're running over people when you were four years old, coach. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's our number one sport in New Zealand, you see. So yeah. we play rugby right from, from as soon as we're out of our mum's wombs. So... <laughs> Um, I think over here it should start around about 10 years old tackle. Um, but before that, you're probably looking at about like, there's a special type of game where they, they play flag, uh, touch, touch flag, touch flag, where mm-hmm. you've got flags in your hips and you've got to try to pull them out. So there's no contact. It's just it's the same style of play, but you, there's no full on contact. Coach, does this game, does this sport also teach discipline as well? It Maybe. does. Yeah. It definitely does. Yep. And then I have one more listener who wants to know, and I think I know the answer is because I had a friend that played rugby. Yes, women and young girls play rugby. Yes, they do. Yep, there's plenty of women's teams out there now. Uh, there's sevens women's teams. There's You've got Life University here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You've got... Uh, Renegades, I think it is Harlequins. So there's a lot of there's a lot of girls teams out here at the moment. Coach, best of luck tonight and also going to the playoffs. We think you should have a WABE night at one of your matches in the playoffs. You know, you get when you come home. So we'll make that happen. We'll be out there. I don't know if you do a, a coin toss or not, but you know, I can definitely do that for you. But best of luck definitely. to you. <laughs> best of luck we'd to love, you. We'd love to invite you next weekend, Rosa, if we get the home playoffs. I'm, I'm rooting for that. And I will be there. My producer, he said, hey, if I had known, we would have been there. So we're going to bring the entire WABE team, which is about four awesome. people. So, but coach, <laughs> best we'd of luck to, to you. We'd love to have you there. Thank All you very right. much. Thank you, coach. Rugby Thank ATL you. head coach Steve Brett. The team takes on NOLA Gold tonight and then the playoffs coming next week. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.